Hi everyone, and thanks for joining us again to continue our journey through Stock Aitken Waterman on this, our 60th episode. I'm Gavin Scott from pop music website, chartbeats.com.au. And I'm Matthew Denby, and we're both rather thrilled to be featured in Classic Pop Magazine's new issue, Kylie Minogue Special Edition Volume 2. They were kind enough to run a four-page interview with us, talking all about Kylie and the podcast and all things Saw. So thanks very much, Classic Pop. Yeah, as two journalists who have put together countless issues of magazines over the years, it's kind of funny to be written about, but it's great that people are enjoying what we're doing as we continue our trawl through Saw's back catalogue. Speaking of which, I'm ready to uncover the stories of the next two singles produced by Mike Stock, Matt Aitken and Pete Waterman. Me too. And for me, these two singles are both tracks I really like. One in particular was a fresh new sound for the Hit Factory that I embraced wholeheartedly, while the other is an underrated gem in that particular artist's catalogue. Sadly, neither of them were as big as they probably would have been 12 months earlier. But that's where we find ourselves on this journey now, in a similar position as in our early episodes, which is talking about tracks that deserved better, at least in my opinion. The year prior, virtually everything Saw released was almost guaranteed a strong top five position. But suddenly the boys were now struggling to even get heard, despite their songs breaking from the old formula and taking cues from what was going on in pop and dance in 1990. We'll hear a good example of that with our first song this week. So, let's get to it. Yes, right away. Our first song is by a male duo who already had one hit to their names. As it would turn out, their names would prove to be a significant factor in the commercial performance of this song, which comes with possibly the messiest backstory we've encountered on the show so far. Before we get into that, however, let's enjoy One Thing Leads to Another by Yell. One Thing Leads to Another by Yell, which was released in June 1990 and sadly only managed to reach number 81 in the UK. As we'll hear, that was despite Yell coming off a top 10 hit at the start of the year with a cover of Instant Replay. Before we get to that success, and then what went wrong for the duo comprised of Paul Varney and Daniel James, let's rewind and go right back to the start of the 80s. Yeah, both Paul and Daniel had ample showbiz experience. Daniel, especially, was a known face, but not a well-known name, from his modelling and TV advertisement work. He'd also done a lot of acting bit parts, he'd hosted a short-run kids series, and he was even a Top of the Pops cheerleader and a studio host on game shows. Paul also had a non-music background in the public eye, with a notable role in an ongoing series of TV commercials he's going to mention in the first part of our interview with him. Here's Paul. You were in a band, I believe, when Yell came around. What type of music were you playing? Uh, at the time, it was a, a sort of mixture of people I went to school with. We kind of were in bands at school and a few people left, and then we got some 
better musicians in, I guess, because some of them were sort of uh, just friends that picked up an instrument, but never really sort of developed much beyond sort of playing sort of basic stuff. I think at the time our influences were sort of Curiosity Kills a Cat, maybe really liked It Bites at the time, so there's a little bit of a rock kind of thing in there as well. So definitely more less commercial than what I ended up doing with Yale and everything. It was more of a band sort of sound. And we were doing okay, actually. We were starting to get noticed a little bit. And record companies were coming to see gigs and things like that. Then all of a sudden, we took a bit of a U-turn with uh, with Yell. And were you the vocalist? Yeah, and keyboard player. And you met Jeff Chagwin, manager. What was his vision for you? Yeah, it's actually it's funny how that came about because at the time, I sort of, in my younger years, I kind of fell into things that I didn't really necessarily, wasn't necessarily looking for. And I did quite a lot of acting when I was younger. I was just really lucky. The first few things I went for, I got straight away. And one of those things was the Milky Bar Kid. I was the Milky Bar Kid for a little while and I did that. And then I carried on. I did some West End stage shows and bits and pieces like that. And then I went into an ITV show called Children's Ward. And I was in that for two series, I think. While I was in that, my agent at the time knew Jeff Chegwin. And she said, oh, I know a manager and he's looking. And she knew that I was obviously in a band at the time. And, and she said, oh, he's, he's looking for singers. Do you want to go and see Jeff Chegwin? So I went to meet him. And although we were sort of doing okay with the band, I went to meet him at Nomis, which was Simon Napier Bell's sort of studio in Hammersmith. And it was a real step up from anything I'd ever experienced in the, in the music world before. You know, there were, I was walking through and there were people from maybe Duran Duran or someone in the corridor. And it was like, it was a completely different world. So straight away, I was impressed and, and I was interested in, in what he had to say. A quick note, Jeff Chegwin is the brother of Keith Chegwin, a name I know will mean something to our British listeners. And I love that Paul Varney was a Milky Bar kid. He played the character from 1981 to 1983 in the UK and was replaced when he got too tall. While Paul was coming to the end of his tenure spruiking white chocolate, Daniel was gearing up to put out his first music releases. Yeah, he released a cover of Dream Lover in early 1983, but at that stage he was known as Colin Haywood. And later in 1983, Colin slash Daniel released his second single, Safety in Numbers. According to the biographical details on the back cover, he was 21 at the time, and that information is going to be important later on. For now, let's listen to Safety in Numbers. That was Safety in Numbers by Colin Haywood, which was written by a couple of guys you might have heard of, Mark Stock and Matt Aitken. They produced it with Pete Ware, who longtime listeners will remember they were still working with in the early days of the relationship with Pete Waterman in 1984. I've seen Safety in Numbers described as imagination meets Kajagoogoo, and when I ran that description past Matt Aitken, he said it was more level 42 meets Kajagoogoo. Well, we can all definitely agree on the Kajagoogoo part. I'd never heard this before, but it immediately places you back in 1983, doesn't it? It doesn't sound like a hit, so I guess in that sense, it's even more like Kajagoogoo. Ooh, to be R. I'm all about the song title puns this episode, apparently. Now, a few years later, in 1986, Colin competed in A Song for Europe, Britain's Eurovision selection process with big ballad No Easy Way to Love. Oh, there. 
that feels a bit Glenn Medeiros to me, and it's also classic Eurovision. But unfortunately for Colin, that song was not chosen to represent the UK. Well, success or failure at Eurovision can change career destinies. And in this case, it looks like it put an end to Colin's solo dreams, because his next move was to team up with Paul in Yell. Let's hear now from Paul about Jeff Chegwin's plans to put together the pop duo. So he basically said he was looking to put together a pop act. He wanted two guys. I think he already had Daniel. And then we met up and he talked about, and it all happened really quickly. It was kind of, we, we did a few demos with um, a guy called Billy Livesey who'd written some stuff for Tina Turner, I think. So it wasn't that commercial. It was sort of more soulful and, and more, I think he did a, a five-star record as well or something like, something like that. Then we did a little showcase at Nomis and Simon Cowell came along and almost straight away he said, I want to do something. And we were in the studio recording tracks for, for Simon and, and one of those was was Instant Replay. Although we did the first single was meant to be a track called Nothing Comes For Nothing and that was always planned to be the first single. But then once we recorded Instant Replay, that, that replaced Nothing Comes For Nothing. What did you make of Simon? I, he was very impressive. I mean, even then... I think around the time that, that we were there, he, he was, you know, he was obviously comfortable sort of financially, but not as comfortable as he is now. And he looked like he, he was, he'd already made it before he'd made it, if that makes sense. He was driving around in a Porsche. He was like, he always looked like he was doing incredibly well. And everything we did was always done to the highest sort of standard. We flew out to America to record the album. We were in LA. We are staying in the best hotels. Everything was sort of really well put together. And we had um, always had drivers. Everything was was always well organised. A lot of the time, you have to pay that back, and you find that out as you get older. <laughs> and what about you and Daniel? Was it a good fit personality wise, and kind of the music you were into? I mean, did you get along? Yeah, I think initially we we, we did. We got on fairly well, and yeah, we, we obviously spent a lot of time together. So so we had to get on to a point. It was really only once we got close to sort of releasing the records that we sort of fell out a bit then and it became slightly difficult. And it was a, a, a bit of an awkward time because it was such a good thing. Everything was going well. But underneath that, we did have a bit of friction between us, which uh, was probably part of the reason that it didn't didn't go as far as, as it possibly could have. In terms of the early days, two guys thrown together, hey, you're a duo, that worked okay, I guess, in the initial bit. Yeah, it was great. Yeah, and it was a new, completely new world. I think to both of us in the you know recording pop videos, and and it was so quick because we seemed to be in every magazine, every newspaper. I mean, Simon was was fantastic at promotion, and he, and he had the best sort of teams on board for promotion. And there were so many stories in the paper that weren't necessarily true, but you know people would say to me, "Oh, I heard you did this," and I said, "No, I didn't. <laughs> not as far as I remember." And even within a few weeks of the record coming out, I had girls outside my house i was still living at home then my mum would call me and say we've got a group of girls from manchester sitting outside the house what, what do i do and she ended up sort of making them tea and giving them something to eat and everything but i was aware i'd be away somewhere working but, but yeah it's a strange strange overnight sort of change and who came up with the name yell i believe it was daniel actually i think he did i think we went through quite a lot of names i think originally we were going to be called just our names which looking back probably wasn't a great idea i think we were like whatever, Haywood and Varney or something, or Varney and Haywood, and it was going to be that kind of thing. But that was when we were doing the more sort of soulful kind of music. 
Daniel's account of this part of the duo's career mirrors that of Paul's, with the guys doing lots of writing and performing at everything from schools at lunchtime to clubs at night. You can hear Daniel discuss it in one of Cheer Up's chats on Mixcloud. As we heard from Paul, the intended first single for Yell was the self-pen track Nothing Comes From Nothing, produced by Pete Hammond. Let's have a listen to that one. Right, that was very PWL, wasn't it? And Pete Hammond had a lot to say about how things went down with that record in his book, Get Down Here Quick and Mix Yourself a Hit. By his account, the whole situation was very reminiscent of what had happened with Big Fun's early recordings with Harding and Kerno. Pete says he was handed the Yell gig by Tilly Rutherford when Pete Waterman was away in Japan pursuing his new obsession with koi fish. According to him, Simon Cowell and the Fanfare Records pluggers absolutely loved the finished track, but when Waterman got back to the UK, the release was mysteriously pulled. According to Hammond's book, much later, Cowell confessed to him that Waterman had allegedly pressured him to cancel the single, under the threat that PWL would drop Fanfare's licensing agreement to release the Hit Factory 3 album if the single came out. With fanfare on shaky financial ground, that was a blow the company couldn't risk. Hammond quotes Cowler saying to him, I'm afraid Waterman had us by the short and curlies. There was nothing we could do. We had to stop the yell release, unquote. So what was the alleged motive? Hammond speculates that Waterman wanted to clear away any competition for his then new act, Big Fun. But the move also ultimately opened a path for yell to become a sore act further down the track. Intrigue. Now, when Nothing Comes From Nothing was finally off the table, instead of another song written by the guys, it was decided that the debut single for Yell would be a remake of disco tune Instant Replay, originally recorded by Dan Hartman. Let's hear both versions now. We all know Simon Cowell loves the cover version and it was his idea for Yell to lead with a remake instead of an original tune. But according to Daniel, he and Paul had heard the Dan Hartman version of Instant Replay while on a holiday in Ibiza and it was Daniel who suggested the song. Whoever thought of the specific track, Instant Replay was duly recorded and Yell were launched, with Colin now going by his new stage name of Daniel James. I'm guessing management and or label were involved in that decision to break with what had come before, so Yell could debut with a clean slate. Now on the one hand, I can see the point of it. Yell were nothing like what Daniel had done before, and it was easy enough to get away with such things in 1990 when no one could go away and do a Google background check. On the other hand, it feels like one of those secrets in soap operas. You know it's going to come out, it's just a matter of when someone plays a tape in the Queen Vic. Yeah, well, Yell got off to a pretty decent start with Instant Replay, which was produced by Nigel Wright and remixed for single release by Pete Hammond, with the track reaching number 10 in the UK. Let's hear from Paul now about that experience. 
Were you concerned at all about coming out with a cover? I'll be honest, I, I, I struggled a bit with the style of music because it wasn't really where I'd sort of come from. Like I was saying before, the band that I was in before and everything. And, and I actually liked the songs that we'd recorded before, the songs that we'd, we'd done originally to get the, the deal. And it was it was going more and more in the cover sort of area. But everyone around you is saying, look, this is going to be a smash hit. And it happens so quick. And everyone they played it to says, oh, yeah, this is great. This will do. So you, you sort of go with it. You think, oh, I'm going to be on top of the pops. Great. Let's, let's go. So, so, yeah, I just went with it. Yeah. And it was good. It was good fun. And I mean, it was a hit. It went to the you know UK top 10. Yeah, th- that was amazing. To do top of the pops is the thing that you always want to do when you're a kid. It's the thing you watch every week. Well, not anymore. Yeah, that, that was a big moment to do that. We did it twice, Top of the Pops. We were on there the same time, I remember, as uh, Sinead O'Connor. Adamski was on there with Seal, I think, maybe with Killer. And my school friend, Lindy Layton, was on there with Beats International. So we were hanging out in the changing rooms with Norman Cook and everyone. It was very cool. It was good. And what about the like the promo side of it? I mean, doing all the Smash Hits interviews, and I, I guess you guys went on the Hitman Roadshow as well with all the screaming audiences. Yeah, that was great. That was, the, the Hitman Roadshows were brilliant because you're all together on the bus and it was just like, really good fun with everyone. And Pete is, is such good entertainment, like the stories that he's got and just the real character. Yeah, that, that was good. That was probably the biggest crowds we'd had at that point because... They weren't just coming to see us, obviously. They were coming to see everybody. And it was a, it was a big draw. And it was, it was really nice. But we, were you comfortable with that side of thing? The, the screaming girl, the girls turning up at your door, even though you weren't there? I would imagine it would take a bit of getting used to, like being, oh, I'm a heartthrob. It is strange. It's strange because you're aware that nothing's actually changed about you from a few months before. But suddenly you're walking down the street and everybody's going, oh, it's you, like your girls are chasing you and stuff. And it's odd like that. I always struggled a bit with the amount of time the promotion side takes. My favourite thing by far is sort of working in the studio or actually sort of writing the songs and singing. And you end up probably 70% of it is promotion, photo sessions, interviews, travelling to somewhere to do a gig. And and, and I, I did struggle a bit with that because I, I missed the creative side of it a little bit because we were on the road so much and, and, and constantly out of the studio. I could definitely see the commercial appeal of releasing Instant Replay. The original had spent three weeks at number eight in November 1978 in the UK, and it was a well-known disco tune. But the song did nothing for me, and that's more down to not loving the original than anything to do with Yell. It also felt a bit like Paul and Daniel were following in Big Fun's footsteps with a cheery disco cover that had PWL links so soon after Blame It On The Boogie. But a top 10 hit is a top 10 hit, with Yell achieving that at a time when the window for that type of pop success was rapidly closing. Yeah, this was another straight down the line PWL-influenced cover of a disco classic, much in the vein of what Pat and Mick had been doing. And it was a good song, so I'm not surprised it charted. And it's the kind of strategy that would work for Take That a wee bit later on. They did It Only Takes a Minute when the winds had changed yet again, this time back in the favour of fun pop music. So with Instant Replay a hit in January 1990, the obvious thing to do would have been to have followed that up quick smart with another single. But that's not what happened, and it's all because the prospect of a follow-up written and produced by Saw themselves was Simon Cowell's ultimate aim. According to Pete Hammond in his book, Waterman kept Cal waiting several months for the follow-up, saying Saw were too busy to finish the track. 
which is a disastrous amount of time in terms of maintaining the momentum from their first hit, especially for a teen heartthrob act whose fans are notoriously fickle and easily distracted. Hammond wrote that PWL charged Cal £14,000 to make the record, as well as another £14,000 for the privilege of Yell appearing on the final Hitman Roadshow. That made fanfare substantially in hock to PWL for the Yell campaign. And after such a painfully long wait, with costs at the label mounting and no hits to show for it, this song really, really needed to fly. For me, it was worth the wait, because what Saw came up with for Yell was everything Instant Replay was not. It felt fresh and unlike anything else coming out of the Hit Factory, or the UK. It had a real American feel to it, and it's taken me decades to work out what it reminds me of, and then a listener recently suggested it sounded like this Janet Jackson track. really see the connection between Janet's escapade and one thing leads to another, especially in the beat. But Matt Aitken told me, quote, I think it was supposed to be more Prince than anything, but largely it just came in from the ether. Whatever the inspiration, like Romy and Jazz's single, it was great to see Mike and Matt incorporating new sounds into their work. For me, this is one of Saw's best from 1990. Right, well, I wasn't following Yell in 1990, so when I gave this a good listen recently, I was really quite surprised by it. My initial reaction was that I never would have immediately guessed that Saw had produced this song, and that it definitely reminded me of Jam and Lewis, especially that big beat. I do hear a bit of earlier prints in those keyboards now that it's been brought to my attention. I find it quite fascinating that Saw were back to taking inspiration from Minneapolis again, because as listeners of this podcast know, that was a big part of Saw's sound around the time of Princess and the Three Degrees and Ochi Brown, but it largely got thrown out the window with the advent of Kylie and Saw's pure pop era. Now they knew they needed to change, and it was back to the Jam and Lewis well again, with pretty good results here. Now, let's hear from Paul about making this record. Did Pete say to Simon, hey, I want I want to do a record with these guys? Was Simon badgering Pete, as I know he did sometimes? How, how did that come about? Definitely Simon was badgering Pete. He was constantly on the phone to Pete, trying to get him to work with us on, on a single. And I remember being in the office and Simon would be calling Pete, saying, look, we really need to know the next single. Have you got anything? Can we come in? And, and and that's really how it happened. It happened through Simon's determination more than anything. And were you keen personally to go and work with Stockake and Waterman? Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Yeah, I was a big fan. I, I, I loved everything they did, especially from Rick Astley onwards. That was when they really you know, got my attention. And so how did one thing leads to another come about? Was it that kind of you walked in, the track was ready, you did the vocals and off you went? Absolutely, yeah. And that was another weird thing. I've never been into a session before where you had no idea what the song was going to be. You don't hear anything beforehand. You just turn up, they play the song, this is the song, you record the song, and then you're, you're out, yeah. It, it was strange having to learn a song that fast, but they really knew how they wanted it to sound. So it, it was quite easy in that respect that Mike and Matt would be there just kind of saying, yeah, no, this is, you need to sit in this pocket, this 
goes like this and and so the song was really well mapped out and yeah you know, they obviously had a good formula by then anyway they, they knew what they were doing and you're certainly not going to argue with them you just go in and do the best you can i remember uh, pete waterman walking in he wasn't always in the studio but i remember every time he walked in he would say something critical to the song if that makes sense so he'd, he'd say yeah i think that bass bit needs changing there or something or, and, and it'd be right and they'd change they'd do something that, that he'd suggested and that's where I think his strength was. He, he was a, a music lover and he could spot what was right and what was wrong in a track very quickly. Did you walk away from the recording session for one thing leads to another, having an idea of this is what the song's going to be? Or did you not really know until it was all done and you heard it? Yeah, not, not again, not really. And I think it changed quite a bit from, from when we'd recorded it to, to the final version we heard. Like the, the track had changed and, and things had changed. So, so it was a surprise. And so what did you think when you heard that the finished product? I liked it. I, I was very aware that it was kind of a very Americanized kind of style and, and it, it was a little bit different from everything they'd done before. So that was a little bit of a worry that how was it going to be received because it's so different. But it was nice that it was different. It was nice that it, they'd come with a different sound that certainly very different from instant replay. Was it disappointing that it didn't connect more than it did? Yeah, it was disappointing. Yeah. Obviously, we were hoping for, you know, for it to do more more than it did and yeah, I, I think it was such a departure from the first track that maybe that was that was a problem as well. That we kind of we hadn't really set a style in, but we weren't established enough for people to go, oh, they're just doing this type of track for now. It was like, well, they did that there, and now they're doing this. And I think it was a bit of a confusing message for people that for listeners. Were you conscious of the sore backlash in the media and things like that? Yeah, I, I think timing had a had a big part of it. I think if if we a few years earlier we maybe could have got away with being slightly different because they would have still been at that peak where people would have given it more time. And I think we didn't have enough of a following for people to give us a chance sort of beyond those sort of few singles because we were sending out a bit of a confusing message maybe. Boy Crazy recorded a version of One Thing Leads to Another as well, the girl group Boy Crazy. Did you ever hear that? And what did you think of it if you did? I did. I actually dated Renee for a little while from Boy Crazy maybe six months or something like that, kind of whenever she was over. And But yeah, I really, they did a, a track that I really like. That's What Love Can Do. That was, wasn't it? It was a great song, I thought. That. I thought that should have been much bigger than it was. I was really expecting that to be a, a, a big single. Love in the Factory. That was the boy crazy version of One Thing Leads to Another, which would crop up on their self-titled album. Although I love most of that album, Yell did One Thing Leads to Another way better, and Matt Aitken agrees with me on that. The term wishy-washy may have been used. I agree with you. I think the Yell version is a million times better than the Boy Crazy one, which is a shame because I think Boy Crazy could have taken a really good version into the US Top 40. But back to the Yell album. As we've heard, the band were flown around the world to record new tracks, which I'm pretty sure probably caused more heart palpitations in Fanfare's accounts department. Yes, it's one thing to spend money as a record label that you will then recoup from artists, but the artists do have to sell records for you to be able to do that. One of the songs that Yell recorded in the US was the track One Touch Too Much, written and produced by a friend of the podcast, Michael J. Let's hear a bit of that track and Michael will tell us about the song and what might have influenced it. Afraid to try again, 
was mine, which I tried very much to sound like Stock Egg and Waterman with that song. <laughs> and it, it does. <laughs> you can tell that I, they were a big influence on me. I want to say that I was brought into that project by Simon Cowell. I think that's how I got involved with Yell. It reminds me of This Time I Know It's For Real. The chord progressions remind me a little bit. I could not stop listening to that album, so I don't know. Maybe there's a lawsuit there? I don't know. <laughs> we'll hear from Michael again when we get to Rhythm of Love. And while One Touch Too Much might have worked as a single, instead it was back to the proven formula and another remake. Yes, in true Simon Cowell style, the next single was yet another cover. This time of Average White Band's 1980 hit, Let's Go Round Again. This one was produced again by Nigel Wright with single remix by Pete Hammond. Let's hear the original and then Yell's version. Instant replay, let's go round again. I'm noticing a theme with those song titles. Anyway, I much preferred let's go round again to instant replay and not just because it was sent to me by, you guessed it, my English pen friend. She'd also sent me One Thing Leads to Another, incidentally. Again, it's probably because I prefer the song let's go round again to the song instant replay. While much of the strategy behind this single was the same, it was interesting to see that Yell were restyled more as a band in the music video. They had backing musicians, Daniel was behind the keyboard, Paul was holding a microphone, he was also smiling, unlike in the surly video for One Thing Leads to Another. But sadly, not even that rebrand was enough to turn Let's Go Round Again into a hit, with the single stalling at number 78. Of course, there probably wasn't much Yell could do at this point, even if they had the best single in the world, because there was another important factor at play here, and it comes back to Daniel's name change and his stated age. Yes, we talked a bit last episode about how things were getting chilly at smash hits for Sonia and Big Fun, but that was nothing compared to the bad press Yell had to endure. When they had their first hit, Smash Hits was already being a bit snarky, taking swipes at the band's decision to open with a cover and hinting at finding the guys themselves less than appealing. But after the newspapers dug up Daniel's past and claims he was very substantially older than his press age of 22, it was all on. Smash Hits really went in for the kill, reporting in different issues that he was at first 30 and then later 32. One of the newspapers even printed his alleged birth certificate. His more uncool past gigs, like Eurovision, were raked over in detail. The band's reputation in the team press was effectively destroyed at that point. Reading some of the coverage now, it seems strangely vicious considering how trivial most of this stuff was, and given the fact that stage names and fictional ages are so common in show business as to almost be the norm. Even if the alleged 10-year age discrepancy was taking that tradition of stretching ages to extremes, the mystery remains as to who was behind these nasty press leaks. If they had ruinous intent, they probably got what they wanted. It does seem particularly vindictive and pointed. Smash Hits also seem to take delight in having big fun lay into Yell in a pop band stoush akin to the Blur vs Oasis Britpop battles mid-decade. 
I really feel for Paul and Daniel being caught up in the middle of not only record company games between Simon and Pete, but also the magazine's agenda. Let's hear Paul's memories of this period in Yell's career, from working on the album with high hopes to the duo's ultimate demise. I actually think that Let's Go Round Again was meant to be the second single. I think that was the original plan. I think that was recorded before we went in with Pete. And then Pete offered us the track and obviously Simon said yes. So we went in and that's why we that's why we changed the plan. And what did you think of doing Let's Go Round Again? Yeah, I loved the song. I was, I was worried because the original was so good. I mean, the same with Instant Replay, but I was really aware of Let's Go Round Again. I, I, I loved that as a song and... and I was a big fan, and especially the vocals. I think the vocals on the on the original were amazing. And I knew we probably couldn't get anywhere near that, actually. So it was always going to be a, a copy at best. In general, putting that album together, was that a, a good, happy experience? Yeah, it was good. And it, but it didn't happen like we didn't say, OK, we're going to spend three months putting an album together. It was bits and pieces, a couple of months of doing promotion for a single that was coming out. And then you get back into the album and then slowly it all sort of pieced together like that. Rather than it wasn't a deliberate, you know, some people go and hide away for six months and record an album. It, it wasn't like that at all. And a lot of the tracks that we wrote together, um, me and Daniel, were done quite early on in the days before for instant replay. So we had a, a backlog of songs that we'd, we'd written that we could sort of draw on and then just finish them off, just go into the studio and, and record them. And was that an easy songwriting collaboration between the two of you? Did you gel in that respect? Yeah, I actually think we did. Yeah, I think I, I never remember it being difficult at all. I think we could sit down and, you know, I had a little studio at home and, and we just kind of come up with ideas and it all went fairly, fairly smoothly. I think, yeah, it's good. What do you remember about Michael Jade? I remember him being a great guy. I remember it being fantastic. And I was so, because he, he'd just done the Martika stuff, I think, Toy Soldier. I love that. And yeah, very good. It was good to work with him. And you could just tell you were working with a, a big American producer. It was a different experience. But I think he was very open to to any input that, that we had. It was different from the Stock Aitken and Waterman thing. But with the production, with everything, he wanted he wanted us to like what was what was happening. Whereas Mike and Matt are kind of like, we don't care if you like it. This is what you're doing. <laughs> well, I think they had the the success and the, the I, don't, I have more confidence in their decisions than mine at the time. Definitely. Okay, so you did the album. The second and third singles hadn't really done so much. Did it feel like? Yell was done by that point? Yeah. Uh, not only musically, at that point, we, we weren't getting on very well at all. I, mean, I don't know how much about that you know or, or how it all, but we'd sort of fallen out quite badly. By, and plus, there'd been quite a lot of press about Daniel and, and things were kind of, you know, and, and already by then, behind the scenes, Simon was starting to get me to record with other people and it was already looking like it was about to end. I think I was kind of ready to move on but i think daniel would have liked to have given it more time maybe if that's right to say i don't know i think that's probably true at the time if, if he was older that would make sense i was young and i thought what if i stopped doing this something else would happen you know i kind of had that sort of naivety to think you know i'll go and have a top 10 somewhere else you know but <laughs> that's obviously not true but you know and so what did you fall out over i don't know what how much you want to say was there a specific event or was it what was it over yeah, it was just gradual things. I think there were some some differences in, in uh, I seem to remember, like the cut of the videos and things like that. And, and you'd get very upset that there might be more focus on, there might be more shots of me than him. And I mean, I know it's silly things or, or whatever. And, and I think probably from my point, because I was quite young and quite, I probably didn't make as much effort as he would like me to make at the time to make things work. And I like really kind of, I think... Uh, 
yeah, there's nothing major. It's just little things that kind of, and if we'd been selling millions of records, I'm sure we would have got on just fine, you know. <laughs> I mean, it's hard when you're thrown together and you don't have history and you have to kind of make that history as you go. It, it is hard when you're thrown in those circumstances. And if, yeah, if things aren't quite working, I can imagine it gets tense. Yeah. Yeah. It was, it was, it was tense. Uh, yeah. And when there's only two of you, it's, it's, it's difficult if two of you aren't talking. If there's three or four, you can kind of go off in your own little camps, can't you? I mean, did it come to that? Did it come to you, that you weren't talking? I think, from what I remember, I think when we did the Let's Go Round Again video, that we weren't talking much at all, if at all then. It was it was pretty bad, yeah. Looking back over the Yell project, Pete Waterman had this to say about the failure of one thing in the pages of Smash Hits. With the Yell single, their record company went bankrupt the day the record came out, so there were no copies in the shops. I also think in hindsight that the band did so much damage to themselves last year in interviews and television that I don't know whether they could have made it. They were a problem, unquote. Pete Hammond had a different take on events that placed Waterman himself much more at the centre of the drama. To quote Hammond's book, Fanfare found itself into Waterman for £28,000 for Yell. Plus, they owed PWL royalties for all the Sunita records, the biggest seller being the track that I had produced. Fanfare couldn't pay. Instead of working something out or giving them time to pay, Waterman had his lawyers freeze Fanfare's bank accounts. Fanfare went under and Simon was out of a job. He even had to give his beloved company Porsche to Waterman as part of the payment of the debt. Needless to say, I never saw my next Sunita royalties. That Sunita track was, of course, right back where we started from. As for Yell, we'll be hearing more from Paul when we reach 1991 because he went on to be signed by PWL directly as a solo artist and released this piece of pure pop joy. As for Daniel, he's been open about the severe toll that Yell's demise had on him. Showing just how harsh the industry can be, he says he found out that it was all over from reading a newspaper article. And then he had to deal with the consequences of that on his own, which included mental health struggles with no help from the music industry. As he said in a few interviews, there was no HR department or union for discarded pop stars to go to. You're often all on your own, as you contemplate the loss of everything, including your livelihood and your sense of identity, while still dealing with the public gaze. But the good news is, Daniel overcame that and found his feet again after moving to America, where he didn't feel any of the weight of his past life. There he went back to acting, which ultimately led to parts in a number of TV shows. More recently, he's found joy in music again, and is writing songs and releasing solo stuff. So, well done, Daniel. We did make contact with Daniel and were in the throes of lining up some time to chat when personal circumstances prevented him from taking part. I'd be really interested to hear his take on that brutal and unfair treatment he received from Smash Hits and what he thinks about the decision to adjust those personal details and whose idea it was. I can hazard a guess. 
The thing about Yell for me though is that I think it was a shame they didn't launch sooner and weren't able to release some non-covers like One Thing Leads to Another and One Touch Too Much earlier. They had obvious vocal talent, which is more than could be said for some pop acts, and they could write songs too. And that seems to have been lost in this tug-of-war that went on around them. Right. Well, unfortunately, I think this was another example of bad timing, and not just regarding the changes in popular tastes in 1990. It never helps when the label you're depending on is on shaky ground, and there was allegedly some weird political stuff going on in the background as well. Let's not even start on that mysterious person who was apparently determined to undermine the band in the press. But none of that can change the fact that One Thing was a pretty damn good record and probably deserved to be a big hit. Agreed. Pop injustice. Now, Yell weren't the only ones struggling to live up to former chart glories in 1990. So too was our next act, someone who had an even better track record of success behind him. Yes, he'd been Saw's biggest act in 1989, but the Jason Donovan phenomenon was starting to run out of steam with the third release from his second album, Between the Lines. Let's have a listen to that track, Another Night. That was Another Night, which hit the charts in June of 1990, stalling at number 18. Unbelievable. It was quite the decline in fortunes for the man who had dominated the British charts the year before. Yeah, if a number 8 peak for Hang On To Your Love had been a bit of a rude shock, then reaching number 18 with his latest single must have been a real disappointment for Jason and PWL Records. I don't say Mushroom, because once again, Jason's Australian label didn't bother to release Another Night locally. So Matt, what do you think went wrong here? Well, Jason the pop superstar was a moment in time. It coincided with the height of Neighbours Mania. Jason was on TV five nights a week in 1989, and the source sound was still super fresh and popular. By mid-1990, Scott and Charlene were off Neighbours, and the times and the sounds were a-changin'. But even without those influences at play, the clock was always ticking on Jason's pop stardom. And that's because he was the classic teen pop heartthrob. His appeal was as a boyfriend figure for a younger, mostly female audience. And in the vast majority of cases, that kind of act has a very short lifespan at the top end of the charts, usually around a year or maybe 18 months. After that time, the audience just literally outgrows the act. Jason's chart trajectory was nearly identical to that of Bross in that sense. Although Jason's showbiz career would endure, and he would experience moments of major success again, especially in relation to his stage work, the flop of this single really marked the end of quote-unquote Jason mania, where almost anything he released would send him rocketing towards number one. Now, another factor that kind of helped Another Night's cause was the fact that, once again, it was released as a single three weeks after Between the Lines, the album, had come out in the UK. And that's a trend we've seen a few times before. And not just at PWL, Love in the First Degree was another example of that. What was up with that? I can't for the life of me work out why the release pattern wouldn't have been Another Night, and then two weeks later, Between the Lines. You get a solid new entry from the single, and then by the time the album comes out, it doesn't matter if the single then falls out of the chart. One more thing, 
There was no new B-side on the Another Night single, and the 12-inch mix, it's a pretty good one, but it probably wasn't enough to help shift more units. In terms of the music, Pete Waterman called this song, quote, one of our best, a bit ABBA, a bit European. As Jason told us, he'd asked for new material that was more within his vocal range. And I guess one side effect of that was that the songs were no longer as ecstatic. I don't mind this track. It's my preferred single from this album. And I really think if it had been released back in 89, it probably would have been a top 10 hit, possibly of the scale of something like Every Day I Love You More. Because back then, the moment would have been on this song's side. But that moment was now over. Yeah, I really like Another Night. It reminds me a bit of Can't Forget You by Sonia, both in terms of it being a little bit melancholy sound-wise, and the lyrics are pretty sad as well. Jason can get through his days, but he just can't take another night without his true love. It's interesting that Another Night peaked at around the same position as Can't Forget You. Maybe those heartbroken songs weren't best released as singles. But what else could have been lifted from the album? There are other strong album tracks, which we'll talk about when we get to the Between the Lines track-by-track bonus episode in due course, but I don't know that any would have done better than Another Night. Should PWL have gone with Rhythm of the Rain or I'm Doing Fine at this point instead? Well, as we'll see, the cover version would do the trick when it came out as single number four from the album, but maybe I'm Doing Fine would really have shaken things up at this juncture. Well, in another sign that the moment had changed, the new heartthrob figure from Neighbours, Craig McLaughlin, and his band Check One Two flew up to number four on the UK charts the week Jason peaked at number 18. Ugh. Well, that record was dreadful. Dreadful! (laughs) And Craig's chart career was a flash in the pan, but it did show just how quickly attention spans can shift. So what did Jason make of his sliding chart fortunes? He said this to Smash Hits just ahead of this single's release. Quote, Do I worry about where my records get to in the charts? Oh yeah, of course I do. It wasn't so great that Hang On To Your Love didn't chart as well as some of my other singles have done, but looking back on it, I think I would have put the blame on the strength of that particular song. It was one of my favourites actually, but I think it was a bit of a grower and not nearly as catchy as, say, When You Come Back To Me. And when Jason spoke to us about his music career, I asked him whether Another Night becoming the first single to miss the top 10 caused panic. Here's his response, and he also brings up a few other points, which we'll then discuss afterwards. <laughs> oh, I mean, it always, you know, when you've had that much success, anything that doesn't land in the top 10 is causing alarm bells. Was it sort of anxious times? Yes. Did we know where we were going at that point? No, but we knew we were going on tour as the Doing Fine tour, and that was selling arenas after arenas. So that was our focus. You know, every we knew every bubble had to burst. We knew that. It's I guess it's how you reinvent yourself beyond that is the most important thing. And, and you know, luckily for me, at one of those shows, this is where someone like a Pete Waterman and, and David Howes don't quite understand Luckily, at one of those doing fine shows was a guy called Andrew Lloyd Webber. Right. Every piece in the puzzle has its place. And that changed the direction of my life as well and gave me all the things that Stock Aiken Waterman couldn't give, which is, and I hate this word, credibility and, and probably a little bit more longevity. Oh, absolutely. I mean, around another night, the sore backlash was in full swing. 
Correct. It was kind of like hard for anyone, you know, despite the track record you had. Look, they spread themselves too thin. That was the problem. And that was Pete's fault. There were some artists in there, and I mean this with love to all of it, would have found their place in other, other camps, I'm sure, because of their talent. But, but I don't think they needed to have taken them. They should have concentrated a little bit more on the ones that had had the biggest impact. When you look at a stock egg Warner package, you'll see the ones I'm talking about are normally on the front selling the CDs, you know, as the, as the, as the legacy. I can't stand the people that, that were criticising Stockacre. They didn't get it. And it was, they just didn't get it. And it's a classic sort of, you know, the Guardian versus Smash Hit sort of brigade. Do you know what I mean? It's, it's a load of bollocks because in time, a bit like George Michael's Wake Me Up Before You Go-Go or, you know, I Want to Hold Your Hand by the Beatles, they become classics they, they appeal Doc Hank and Warner weren't they weren't making it for enemy enemy correct yeah <laughs> that was not the point it was pop that was the point I think their mistake lied more in the development of the artists that needed development and not spreading themselves a bit too thin The chart flop of this single coincided with another major crack forming in the relationship between Jason and PWL. His decision to tour caused a major stink at the record company, with Pete Waterman publicly expressing his unhappiness in his number one magazine column. Upset about what that meant for his beloved Hitman Roadshow, and probably also for Jason's promotional schedule, Pete let fly. Quote, Jason's management has hurt all of us. He's not touring here until October and he's already sold his tickets and put the money into a bank account before the kids even start thinking about New Kids, Kylie or My Road Show. It doesn't show the positive side of pop when all these tickets go on sale at the same time. The piece of the pie gets smaller and in the end no one can be bothered to buy. You cut it into too many bits and nobody wants it because it ain't worth eating any. You can just hear Pete saying that can't you and we'll hear a bit more from Jason about the motivation to get out on the road and play live when we reach I'm Doing Fine, after which his 1990 tour was named. But one thing to bear in mind is that, as we know, Saw songs weren't necessarily designed to be performed live. And although I think we can all agree, including Jason, who told us as much, that there were times he struggled with those high notes that Mike Stock wrote for him, his voice was much stronger on Between the Lines, so it was the perfect opportunity to put it to the test. Right, well, the reviews for Jason's tour were generally pretty good, with smash hits marvelling that Jason could actually sing well live, and noting that maybe he'd been asked to sing too high on his records. Well, we don't know what would have happened had Jason stuck to the script that PWL wanted, but that tour ultimately did set him up for a lifetime of stage work, and he's still treading those boards right now. At this point, let's hear from engineer Pete Day. Another Night was one of the first singles he worked on as he stepped up to take over Karen Hewitt's role, and one of her last. He talks about a few of the things relating to vocals that we've just discussed. Was it really just a, you know, if it ain't broke, let's just keep pumping out more pop stuff for Jason? Yeah, I think there was always with Jason, you know, this, uh, this element, you know, lots of people talked about it, having a more rockier edge. I'm not really sure that it ever went, you know, that far. They were essentially still, you know, the pop songs that they were, and they might have had more guitar in there. But for me, anyway, it wasn't at least that noticeable that there was a a big push to change in a different direction. 
With Jason's vocals, I think everyone's in, in agreement that he had improved a lot by Between the Lines. He was. He was he was definitely improving. Um, I think the way Mike would write a tune would be slightly out of the singer's range. And that was for a deliberate reason. And the point about it was, is that if you push a vocalist slightly out of their range, you get more excitement from that. You get more performance because they're reaching for it. I remember Mike saying, you know, you don't want to be, you know, you sound as if you're sitting in a in a rocking chair just singing because that's not going to project, particularly if you want to hear it on a radio, which is obviously where our market was. You want it to basically come out of the speakers, you know, in that, you know, two to 4K range. That's where you want it to basically hit out. And if you're not pushing you know, your voice, you're not really going to reach those notes. So that's why he always basically tried to put it just above what their range was. And this is where kind of, I think, sometimes the confusion is with Jason and his vocal and the fact that he was he was just probably finding it harder to push out of his range than some of the other singers. Yeah, but he definitely developed over that time because I don't think, you know, when he started, he even saw himself as a singer. So, you know, from obviously having a massive success for 10 good reasons and going out and singing, uh, you know, he would still have to sing if he went out live. He, he might have had, you know, a vocal in there, a three-quarter vocal or whatever it is, but he was still out there singing. So all of that practice obviously helps develop your vocal cords and your range. But then, yeah, the danger is you make it too high and they can't sing it. Yeah. I mean, I think the idea was we were making a record and we were trying to make the best records that we could at the time. I'm not sure that we were necessarily concerned about how that was going to, you know, portray in a live setting. So, you know, it was about making the records for us, really. But even on the record? I mean, some of them would have taken a little bit longer because it was out of his range. If there's a note, you know, we might have to do that quite a few times to actually get if there was a note that was slightly out of his range. Pete Day makes an interesting point about Jason's so-called rockier second album not actually being very rocky. Maybe for sore it was, but it was hardly check one too. And that's a good thing. The Smash Hits review for Between the Lines took no prisoners, even unkindly comparing Jason's evolution to that of Kylie Minogue. Quote, Whereas with Better the Devil You Know, Stock Aitken and Waterman have rather successfully made Kylie sound deeply trendy, the plan for Jason seems to be quite the opposite, i.e. turn him into a sort of a young Cliff Richard. Compared to 10 Good Reasons, this is disappointing. The Cliff Richard comparison is a valid one. As far back as Sealed with a Kiss, it does feel like that young teen 50s and 60s idol was kind of a template for what PWL wanted to do with Jason. Having him in a nice suit on the single cover of Another Night certainly fit in with that clean-cut image. And music-wise, Between the Lines was quite safe and inoffensive. I really like it, don't get me wrong, but it didn't rock any boats. Let's hear from Mike Stock about his approach to this album. I think we already knew that we may have come to the end with Jace because I think there was always already murmurings. He was being offered stuff, you know, like the Joseph show and one thing or another. And we thought he was going to go at some point. Uh, so I don't know whether we really knew what, whether we had a plan for the second album in it, stylistically. Uh, we knew we'd just carry on with some guitars and just to differentiate between that and Kylie. But then Kylie started to have guitars. And so, yeah, and I think Jason wasn't giving us very much, you know, in terms of feedback. 
he, he's such a great worker. Well, and Kylie, they were, they, they were working their butts off going everywhere and doing everything possible to help promote the whole bandwagon. So I, I was happy, really, just to get, grab him whenever I could in the studio, which wasn't a lot. You know, we, ne- we never spent long in the studio with Jason or Kylie or any of the acts. We just felt it was better to get them in, get them out, uh, promoting for their own careers as much as for the... Because so, we could get on with finishing off the work on our own. We didn't really need them to help. Although there was an occasion when Jason just wanted to come into the studio for a day just to hang out with us and jam around with a guitar, you know which we accommodated, but I think he realised it's it's not really like that. <laughs> I mean, I know you you, well, you do see uh, some old footage of rock and roll, not rock and roll, but 70s artists sort of who are in studios for six months or a year or however making records, and then they have arguments, they tear each other apart, and then they throw the guitar down and then they get... <laughs> you know, it wasn't like that with me and Matt and our setup. Hang on to your love and another night. They were fairly consistent in tone in that they possibly could have been on 10 Good Reasons, but they were a little bit more mature, slightly. It was more mature, definitely, Um, slightly. I mean, you you can't go too far, of course, but I suppose slightly edging into a rocky, rockier feel. I really like them, but obviously there was a bit of a muted response to them. Yeah, you can't be all things to all people, unfortunately, because like I was saying, Jason was, I think, edging towards being a, more of an entertainer in other worlds, you know, as well as a pop singer. And you've got to go somewhere. And I, I suppose you can leave some of the fans behind if you're not careful. Right. Interesting. Now it's Matt Aitken's turn to discuss the Between the Lines era. Funnily enough, Jason posited the idea you know, he wanted to be in excess or something like that, you know. So you'll notice on the second album, there are a lot of guitar-led tracks. There's quite a few beakley things that we felt he'd be more comfortable with because you can't go from doing, especially to you, to being Van Halen in one record. You know, you've got you to take that a little, you know, so let's take this easy, buddy. And Jason, I think, was very happy. You know, I, th- I think he would prefer to have been with a band. It would have been a lot easier for him as a guy. But he was always a delight to work with and always the consummate performer under every circumstance. And by this time, he'd had his ear operation and his, uh, his singing got a lot, an awful lot better as well. Between the Lions may not have come close to matching the level of success of 10 Good Reasons, but it did reach number two in the UK for two weeks. It did stay on the UK Top 75 for half a year and it did go platinum. Yeah, the album was beaten to the top by the second Soul to Soul album. That act were the big darlings of the moment, and they definitely felt like the face of British music in 1990. Missing the top spot was an unexpected turn of events for Jason, given he'd just had 1989's biggest selling album by far. He said to classic pop of Soul to Soul's big coup, it was evident the times were moving on. Soul to Soul is going to be particularly relevant to a song we get to next episode. But for now, let's wrap up our discussion of Another Night and Between the Lines by hearing from former PWL MD David Howells about the direction Jason's music took in 1990. Songs like Hang On To Your Love and Another Night didn't perform as well on the charts as things like Every Day and When You Come Back To Me. What did you put that down to? 
I'm not really sure. There were mistakes. In, in retrospect, I suppose you can say that, but you don't necessarily know that at the time. You know, artists evolve, they grow, uh, you try and evolve with them. And sometimes there are missteps, and sometimes you recover, and sometimes you don't. Uh, whether it's the artist or whether it's the uh, producers or the writers, uh, a combination of all three, perhaps, but um, didn't have the impact it should have. Yeah, it's not a guaranteed art form, music. It really isn't. When you have a lot of success, one after the other after the other, it looks like you've got the formula and the magicians are at work. It isn't actually like that. There's still an enormous amount of luck involved and so many elements come together. So for an artist to consistently achieve extraordinary success, uh, there's an awful lot of focus going on there. And sometimes it doesn't happen. It's interesting that once the Between the Lines campaign was over, Jason was given a song that was anything but a mistake. It's just a shame that RSVP came out in 1991 and not 1990. But let's not get ahead of ourselves. Coming up next in our 1990 coverage is an episode featuring songs I've been dying to get to. Not because I'm a fan of most of them, but because it is the climax of our ongoing jukebox era cover version storyline. And also the long-awaited second part of the Lonnie Gordon saga. Yeah, I can't wait for that chapter. Well, I want to do a big shout out to the lovely Graham in the UK, who was kind enough to dive into his personal library to help me with my research on this episode. Thanks, Graham. Also, if you want to show us some love, please consider voting for us in the Australian Podcast Awards in the Listener's Choice category. You can find a link to the voting form at chartbeats.com.au forward slash saw. Yeah, it'll be just under the new episode there. And in the bonus material for this episode, you'll find extended interviews with Paul Varney and Pete Day. And Matt and I are going to have a little bit more of a chat about our theories about Yell and what went wrong and why it turned into such a big dramatic mess. And one more thing, if you haven't sent in your ranking for Between the Lines, we'll be doing that track by track very soon. So hop to it. You can DM your vote from 10 to 1 to me on Instagram or Twitter. Find me there at chartbeatsau. You. you can message me via Facebook from the Chartbeats A Journey Through Pop page or email chartbeats.au at gmail.com. Really no excuse. And so Matt doesn't feel left out, go say hi to him too. Yeah, you can reach me on Twitter or on threads. Just search for my name. All right, everybody. Thank you for listening. See you in a couple of weeks for our next ballad heavy episode. Bye. Bye.